I'm going to ask you to take your hymnals now and turn to 228. We're going to thank you. Please be seated. Our Lord, the judge, shall come, we have sung. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah knew the God whom he worshipped. Jeremiah's God is our God. There is not one God of the Old Testament and another God of the New Testament. The God that Jeremiah knew is the God that you and I know. Jeremiah knew his God well. I hope that we know our God well also. This summer we have devoted our study on Sunday mornings to Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah's prayer because it helps us not only to understand what he knew about God, but it instructs us in what we should know about God. And of course, that's the purpose of the whole Bible. The Bible is given to us as God's self-disclosure, so that in its words and ideas, God reveals himself to us. This is a generation of much knowledge. I heard someone say a few years ago that 90% of our accumulated knowledge we have learned in the last 20 years. That is phenomenal. But while this generation has much knowledge available, it is increasingly ignorant of God. And there is no knowledge that is more important than that knowledge. Jeremiah chapter 9 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God says, I delight in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. Those words link up with the theme that comes out of our text for today where we learn that God is a just God, that he has established his universe on the principle of justice, that he has instituted the concepts of right and wrong, and that he has defined right and wrong according to his own character, not the whims of man. And he has given to man, uniquely from all other creatures, a sense of conscience and morality to know right and wrong. And God holds responsible all men for their behavior as measured by his rule. Dr. Paul Enns writes in the Moody Handbook of Theology, the justice of God means that God is entirely correct and just 
in all his dealings with humanity. Moreover, this justice acts in accordance with his law. The justice of God, therefore, is related to man's sin. Since God's law reflects God's standard, then God is righteous and just when he judges man for his violation of God's revealed law. Jeremiah's understanding of the justice of God is revealed in, reflected in our text for today, which is verse 19, once again, of Jeremiah 32. Where Jeremiah writes, Great in counsel and mighty in deeds, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. Let me repeat that. Whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. God is mighty in his reward. That truth, as we will see this morning, is two-edged. That God knows all and rewards accordingly should comfort the righteous and terrify the wicked. There are two basic ideas that Jeremiah reflects regarding the justice of God. They are simple and yet they are profound. The first idea is this, that God has determined a time of judgment. That's presupposed in what Jeremiah says. God gives to everyone. He recompenses to everyone according to his deeds based upon what God has seen and he sees all things. There's a law of compensation that operates in God's world. We work and we are paid. We sow and we reap accordingly. We act and we are rewarded. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall reap, the Bible says. It is an undisputed principle. In the workplace, it's called salary. In agriculture, it's called harvest. In human behavior, it's called judgment. Paul ends, again writes, God's justice on the positive side is termed remunerative justice, which dispenses reward to the obedient. On the negative side, it's termed retributive justice, an expression of divine wrath in which God punishes the wicked. On one magnificent day, the Apostle Paul stood before the wisest men of the world in his day. It was in the city of Athens on the outcropping of a hill that was termed Mars Hill. It was there these men gathered to debate this and that and to listen to speeches and to do the elite's intelligent, uh, intellectual things of their day. And the Apostle Paul 
gained the privilege of speaking to them. Somewhere in his message to them, I don't know where it was, it became the end. <laughs> it became the end. He said regarding this God who has created everything and uh, who gives us breath and life and being and this God who causes all men to rise up or to fall. He says regarding this God, he has fixed a day, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was the point that they cut him off. They said, enough of this. And they began to argue and dispute regarding the resurrection of the dead. But Paul delivered his point, and his point is that the Creator God holds all men responsible, even those who are ignorant intellectuals who refuse to acknowledge Him. And He has fixed a day, it's on God's calendar. And He has appointed the judge. And we know who the judge is because God raised him from the dead and there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. And God is going to judge. Jesus, too, spoke of the judgment. There are those who like to manufacture some sort of image of Jesus that he was only meek and mild and loving and forgiving and never said anything harsh and never spoke of judgment or of hell. That is an imbalance in one's vision of Jesus. Jesus was loving and forgiving and spoke many wonderful things, but he also was very clear in announcing judgment. In the book of Matthew, no fewer than four times, he used this very phrase, the day of judgment, the day of judgment. And time and time again, he spoke of that day. That day. Referring to this day of judgment. And so Jeremiah understands a very basic premise that our generation has laid aside. And that is that God has determined a day of judgment. And if you were to stand in the university classrooms of our generation they too would begin to scoff and laugh when you spoke of a day of judgment and of the man who will stand in judgment on that day whom God has raised from the dead. There are a couple of thoughts I want to share before I go on, and that is this day of judgment that is appointed may not be as soon as we might wish when we see the evil in our world. There are things that have happened to friends of mine and to people that I love and some whom I've discipled. Wicked and evil things. Done purposefully. And I have said, God, why? Why do you allow this to go on?
And when we see God's servants who are held captive year after year and we pray, and we say, God, why? Why doesn't judgment come? And we hear of the heinous crimes committed in our community. And we say, where is judgment? It brings me to this thought that this judgment day may not come as soon as we might wish. But friends, it is coming. Don't lose sight of that. God has established a principle of compensation in our universe. There is justice that is at work, even though at times it seems to work very slowly. Brings me to a second thought. This judgment that I am speaking of this morning will occur in conjunction with the coming of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deed. By the way, when Jesus made that statement, he was quoting from Psalm 62 and verse 12, where it says that Yahweh is going to judge every man according to his deeds. So do you see what Jesus was saying? He is saying, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am the Lord of the Old Testament, and I am the one who will judge every man according to his deeds. God is mighty in reward both to the good and to the evil, both to the righteous and unrighteous. And God has determined a day of judgment. But my second thought is this this morning. The second basic idea that Jeremiah had grasped is this, that the future judgment will include every person. It's not a general judgment of all men. It is that every person individually will stand before God. In Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, he says. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The righteous man will appear in judgment. The believer in Jesus Christ will appear in judgment. You, if you are a Christian, will appear in judgment. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Literally it says, whether it be good or good for nothing. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and thank God it will not be to give answer for our sin. For if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin, past, present, and future, all of it, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It is under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
But there is an element of judgment that we will face. It is an examination of the works of our lives. It is possible for us to live so that our deeds are good. They are beneficial. They mean something. They edify. They assist. They help. They build up. Or we can live so as to live for nothing. We believers. Our lives can have the line drawn under them and the line be added up so that it says good for nothing. Zero. And we will receive recompense from the Lord accordingly. That ought to be a terrifying thought to all of us. It was at least to the Apostle Paul. Because after saying those words, he went on to say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There is a truth that has been, I think, over-articulated in our day. And that is that we don't believe uh, in a Christianity of works. That we as believers are not on a treadmill trying to prove ourselves to God. And of course, there is an element of truth to that. God accepts us as we are in Jesus Christ. But I say it's been over-articulated in the sense that we've sort of bought into the idea, well, it doesn't make any difference how I live. That I can live the way I want to And in the end, it doesn't make a hill of beans of difference. And that simply is not true. God is going to hold us accountable for the way that we live our lives. And we shall each one appear at the judgment seat. That that term bima seat, the judgment seat that Paul uses, was well known in Athens, or in, uh, in Corinth. The letter that was written to Corinth contains that phrase. It was a seat in the public square where a number of things occurred, including rewards being given to athletes at games. Uh, We are all interested, I suppose, in the Olympics and watching uh, the world's best receive the gold, the silver, and the bronze. And they stand before the gathered thousands and someone places around their neck or into their hands the coveted metal for which they have worked so arduously. Well, that is the idea here. Paul says there is something to be gained from the Lord. There is a metal, as it were, to be gained, a crown to be gained from him if we live well. But if we do not, we suffer loss. Not loss of salvation, but loss of the reward. There are eternal rewards to be gained or lost according to a believer's works. But the wicked will also stand before judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 7 says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as there is eternal reward to be gained for the righteous, there is an eternal hell to be avoided by those who are lost. That hell is the destiny of those who do not repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are some phrases in the scriptures that lead a few to believe that the future judgment will occur all at the same point. In other words, there's going to be a general resurrection and everybody will stand there and God will judge everybody at one time. That is not the case. The scriptures indicate that in the future there is a series of judgments that will eventually entail everyone. Let me just give to you quickly the five of the major judgments that are still in the future. Number one, it is the judgment of the church. That is, the judgment of those who have believed on Christ in this age from the time of Pentecost until the Lord raptures or catches out the church. 1 Corinthians 3 describes that judgment that will take place when we will be examined before the Lord. The second judgment will be a judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet, two of the leading figures in the time of rebellion at the end of this age. When those seven years of tribulation are ended, the Antichrist and the false prophet will have a special judgment. And the two of them, according to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20, will be cast into the lake of fire. And they will be the only inhabitants of the lake of fire for a thousand years and more. The third judgment will occur at the end of the tribulation and before Christ's reign in the millennium when all of the other saints will be judged, including those of the Old Testament who will be resurrected to stand before the Lord and those tribulation saints who have died. They will be judged before the millennium begins, as will the believing Gentiles who are still alive in that day and the believing Jews, those Jews who have believed in the tribulation and are still alive. And so if you're tracking with me, you see that all of the righteous, all of those who have believed in all of the ages, will before the millennial reign of Jesus Christ be judged for their works and rewarded accordingly. The next judgment is the judgment of the devil and his angels. In Christ's reign, the devil and his angels will be held captive in the bottomless pit. They will not be able to work as they do now. But at the end of the thousand years, they are loosed. And there is one final rebellion that they foment upon the earth against God. And God intervenes and brings that to an end. And as he does that, it says that he casts the devil into the lake of fire, where the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are. A thousand years after they were cast there, they're still there in torment. They have not been annihilated. And now the devil joins them. And then 
there will be the resurrection of all the lost. Who will stand before God in what is called the great white throne judgment. Jesus Christ sits on the throne and before his face the earth and heaven flees away. And the books are opened, the books of the works of their lives. And the book of life is there. And if their names are not found written in the book of life, they are judged according to the works of their lives, and then their eternal destiny in the lake of fire is determined, and judgment is carried out. My point is that there is not one of us that will escape the judgment of God. We will be judged at one time or another by the living God. My closing thoughts are these. Judgment for sin can be avoided only by the cross. The reason for that is that God has poured out his retribution and his wrath for sin upon his son at the cross. And if one would escape personal responsibility for his sin and personal judgment for his wicked deeds, he must come to the cross and there repent of his sin and receive the Savior as an act of faith. And in doing so, he is delivered from the judgment for his own sin. Have you done that? Have you received that gift of grace that God offers to you at the cross? Do not press ahead in your life bearing the load of your sin only to face the judgment bar of God at the great white throne judgment. There is no escape for responsibility for what you've done. Either you must personally bear the eternal judgment for it, or you must recognize that the Savior has borne it on your behalf. And in turning from your sin and receiving Him, find escape from your responsibility and salvation and rescue. The second thing I want to say in closing is this, that whatever you as a believer do in the name of Jesus Christ is noted. There is nothing that God does not see. Last Sunday after the team had finished its work in Guatemala, we were gathered for a brief service in a quiet spot in uh, the city of Antigua. And I had decided what I wanted to read, but I found myself nearly incapable of reading it. Because I had seen the labor of these men and women on the team. And these are the words that the Lord led me to read to them. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. 
naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer the king saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we give you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you, Lord? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And I was overwhelmed as I thought of how this magnificent team had served some of the most poor and the most needy of God's people. They had done it unselfishly. But they had not only served them in doing that, they had served the Lord Jesus. You remember that yourself, will you? That every cup of cold water you give in His name is noted. You're not only meeting the need of another person, you're not only encouraging that one, you are serving Jesus himself. And one day, the righteous Lord will reward you for your work of love. My closing comment is this, that we'll be glad in that day that we did what we're doing for Christ now. We'll be glad in that day that we're doing now what we did. And if we're not doing now what we ought to be doing, then we better get with it. Because there's a day coming when we will stand before the Lord and the righteous judge will recompense to each of us according to our works. It will be worth it all, says the songwriter, when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Run the race this week, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, let me close by just telling you about Charles Finney, who was near the end of law school in the state of New York, when one day in his office, he seemed to hear the voice of God say to him, Finney, what are you going to do when you finish your course of studies? And Finney said, well, I'm going to hang up a shingle and practice law. And the Lord said, well, what then? Then he said, I'm going to get rich. And the Lord said, well, what then? And then he said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to retire. And the Lord said, well, what then? And then he said, guess I'm going to die. And the Lord said, what then? 
And Finney ran out of his office into the woods and spent the whole day seeking God and came back a transformed convert to Jesus Christ when he recognized that for every one of us, death is appointed and after that, the judgment. Let's pray. Perhaps you need to seek the face of the Lord this morning for your own salvation, my friend. If the Lord were to ask you that series of questions, what then, what then, what then? Are you prepared to stand before him? The prophet Amos said, prepare to meet thy God. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, will you do it? And say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my sin. I believe that you died for my sin on the cross. I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I receive you as an act of faith into my life. To be my Lord and my Savior. It is that act of faith, my friend, that will cause you, allow you, to escape responsibility for the guilt that is on your soul. And if you neglect it, if you ignore it, if you reject it, you do so to the peril, the eternal peril of your soul. So receive him today. And if that is your desire, would you indicate it just by lifting your hand and putting it down? And saying, dear God, I do not want to stand before you in judgment and be responsible for the evil of my life. But today I receive Christ as my Savior. Would you lift your hand and put it down? Is there one? Let's stand together, please. Father, I pray that this reminder this morning of what Jeremiah knew about you and what we also need to know, that you're a God who is mighty in reward, will encourage us in our service. May we be willing to press on and to run the race, whatever it means for us, knowing that on that day we shall receive from your hand according to our deeds. And may on that day our hearts be filled with joy because we have been faithful and obedient now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.